Good morning. If you were to take time to get to know me at the depths of who I am, you would learn that I am a perfectionist who, throughout my years of school, um, the only thing worse than failing an exam or a test was to get partial credit. Because partial credit, uh, although you would get half, 75% of credit for the work that you did, it would remind you that you had not completed the work. That you had not achieved in its fullness what you intended to set out to do. For a perfectionist, partial credit is kind of aggravating. It's kind of annoying. But as we begin to ponder what it means to be partially fulfilled, I want to bring you to Southeast Tanzania just for one moment, one night, It is uh, sitting in my living room, or what is the semblance of a living room, with one of my best friends in the village. His name is Faziri Ntobwe. He's about 27, 28 years old. Him and his wife with three children uh, are one of the most hospitable families in our village. And as me and my wife began to know them, they invited us over their house several times for meals. And so we wanted to exchange the favor of hospitality and not only try to show them what we've learned about their culture by cooking Tanzanian food, we wanted to introduce them to our culture by cooking for them some American food. We were going to have kind of a mixture of diet that evening. And as it was when we were learning language, if there's anything to demonstrate to me or to even our teammates there, or my wife, that you haven't quite arrived, that you haven't quite fulfilled your task, it's the attempt to try to learn another language. Um, it doesn't matter if it's the, uh, the one moment I tried to ask the bus driver if I should load my farm animals instead of my luggage, or the one time my friend came by my house and he was working and doing some gardening for me and I asked him, he asked me um, if, if he could help himself. And I asked him, how can I help you? He said, can I help myself? Well, colloquially, Swahili, when you say you need to help yourself, it means you need to use the bathroom. So, in my wisdom, I asked, how can I help you? And I didn't understand it until he kind of squatted like this. And then nonverbal communication commuted everything. But this one instance, I, I had been saying to a lot of my friends, in terms of Americans... We as Americans love to have a mixture of food. We like a mixture. That was the word I used, mchanganyiko. Mixture of Tanzanian food and American food. So my friend came to our house this evening. His wife was not able to come because she was ill. And we began to, sat down, we began to sit down, gathering in the room. Suki was finishing, finishing the preparations for the meal. We gathered on a mat. There was no electricity, so we lit a little petroleum uh, gas lantern. And um, this is a man who's very hospitable to the point where he's even hospitable in your own house. He doesn't know how to be a guest. He only knows how to be a host. And so he asked my wife immediately, um, can I have a plate? My wife didn't know why, so she got him a plate. And the way the setup was on the mat, there was the lantern, there was the the fixture of rice that we already made and I was over in the corner trying to pour some some juice but he insisted that he helped us and so him who wanted to be a good guest he actually remembered the words I said he said that those Americans they really like to do mixtures of food they really like to do mixtures of food and so 
as the bowl of rice was sitting in our presence and there was a little bowl for washing hands with soap in it and there was uh, a bowl of pasta that my wife was bringing out, he began to take initiative. And he took the bowl of hand, uh, bo- the bowl that was filled with soap for washing and he dumped the pasta in it, unbeknownst that there was soap in the bottom of the bowl. And then he took the bowl, which is, remember, now filled with soap on the bottom and pasta on the top, and he dumped it on top of the rice. And I never have felt this out-of-body experience before, but I began pouring the juice, so mesmerized by what he was doing, the juice was overflowing on the, the mat. And I quickly tried to not embarrass him. I sat down next to him and quickly grabbed the bar of soap so it wasn't there, and thus we began to eat pasta, rice, sitting on a mat, drenched in juice. If there's ever something to remind you that you have not arrived, it is the confusion that can result when you learn another language. But you, you know what we often experience in the Christian life, in the way that we exist as believers together, we often experience a similar confusion. We often experience a similar angst of, of understanding a little bit of what we are to do, but some other things just don't seem quite to match up. Have you ever noticed that we as Christians have received the forgiveness of sins and yet sometimes in the midst of temptation we still sin? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that we are the inheritors of eternal life? God in heaven has chosen us for full life and yet we will all die. That we have been declared righteous by the work of Jesus on the cross but If you're honest, we have not quite been made righteous. And we experience the fellowship and joy of community, yet sometimes, in a group of people, it is the loneliest place. We experience the depth of intimacy of knowing a God who would sacrifice His Son in light of our evil, and yet sometimes, when we pray to Him, the heavens feel like bronze and our souls feel dry. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever felt this confusion that if there ever was a people who knew what it was to live in between the promises of God and their fulfillment, it it is us, the people of God. If there was ever a group of people to know what it was to experience part of the blessing and not experience the blessing not quite yet in its fruition, it was us, the people of God. And the confusion that results from that can often lead to many responses. But if there ever was a people who knew what we know and feel what we feel, it was also the people of Israel. Remember that this people was a people that, would cho- that was chosen from one person, Abraham, and they were promised to multiply, to extend and fill the earth and inherit a land. And yet, for years, although they were numerous, they didn't inherit their land. They were a people that knew the covenant of God and His faithfulness to deliver them out of Egypt in bondage, and yet they spent years in exile in Babylon and Assyria. This was the people that actually received the promise of God for the Messiah to come. And yet, you ever think about the fact that the majority of Jews never lived to see the Messiah come. 
If there ever was a people that knew the confusion of living in between the promises of God and their fulfillments, in between the, the blessings of God and them not quite yet coming to fruition, it was Israel. How exactly do we live? Oh, we're not asking the question today, why? What we want to ask is, how do we live in between the promises of God and their fulfillment? What do we do with that confusion of spiritual life and yet dryness, of the forgiveness of sins and yet temptation of sins? What do we do with that confusion of the in-betweens? How do we live? In Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22, we find a short narrative, a short story that gives us precise insight into that question. And what I want to do this morning is, real briefly, I want to read the story three ways to you, three times, on three occasions. We want to read Exodus chapter 1 in light of Israel in bondage. Israel is in Egypt, and they are going to be enslaved. And I want to read the story as a story about Egypt and bondage. But I secondarily want to read the story to you not only as a story about Egypt, but a story written to, not only a story about Israel, but a story of written to Israel, about to inherit their land. Because as we understand the first five books of the Bible, they were written to a people about to enter into the land of Canaan. Why would Moses include this story for that people, who are wandering in the desert, about to inherit the land? And as a third reading of this text, this story, I want to read the story for you in light of our situation. What does it look like as a Christian to look back at this text and how it applies to our life? So in Exodus chapter 1, written about Israel, written to Israel, and written for us. This is what we want to do this morning. And we want to accomplish it by answering this question. How do we live in between the promises of God, which we have received in part, but the fulfillments are still distant from us. When we look at Exodus chapter 1 and the beginning verses, we we find that the story begins by a genealogy and begins by saying that these are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt with Jacob. And he lists the twelve sons of, of Jacob and he says all of these who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. There were 70 that found their way into Egypt. You remember the story. Joseph was the favorite son. And he had been sold into slavery by his brothers. And somehow, through the grace and miraculous provision of God, found his way on the top-tier leadership in Pharaoh's court. He experienced slavery, he experienced bondage, he experienced imprisonment, but somehow ended up in the top-tier leadership in Pharaoh's rule. And he began... Not only in his own success, but also he began to deliver Egypt from from an imminent famine that was coming. He interpreted a dream of Pharaoh's and said that famine's coming. You need to begin to store up crops so that you can actually eat and not be overcome by hunger. And then toward the end of this time, Joseph not only becomes a deliverer for Egypt, but he actually becomes an agent of reconciliation for his family. And he brings Jacob and all of his, the rest of his brothers, brings them back into Egypt and preserves them from the famine as well. And in Genesis chapter 50, 
Right before we enter into this text of Exodus chapter 1, listen to what Joseph says. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, Joseph said to his brothers, Do not be afraid. Am I, in fact, in God's place? As for you, all of this enslavement and selling me into slavery that you did, as for you, Joseph says, you meant it as evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. To preserve many people alive. So, therefore, he says it again, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. In verse 24, Joseph, he says to his brothers other words of comfort. He says, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you. He will bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And God will surely take care of you and shall carry, and you shall carry my bones up from here. In these last and final words of Joseph, Joseph promised to the people of God, he promised to Jacob and the rest of his brothers, he said that I will surely, as I have been in the past, I have not only preserved you by bringing you to Egypt, but now I will provide for you. And God who has promised you in His covenant, He's promised you not only that you will multiply, but that you will fill the land and you will inherit a land. He will take care of you. He will surely do so. There is no question in the matter. God in spite of my death, will compassionately deliver you from this land of Egypt to inherit your own land. But listen to how the story in the very next verses transpires in Exodus chapter 1. We read in verse 6 that Joseph died in Exodus chapter 1 verse 6 and all his brothers of that generation. And we begin to think that how can this be? Joseph, the one that delivered his brothers and his father from imminent death, from the pains of famine, now all of a sudden he's off the scene. He's nowhere to be found. The deliverer of Israel, Joseph, one who even prefigures Christ to come, has died. And now in verse 8, there's a new king that arose in Egypt. And this king, this Pharaoh, is of a different ilk. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't remember the days in which Joseph was imprisoned. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph delivered the whole nation of Egypt from famine. This Pharaoh, he didn't know anything of those days. And now the deliverer of God is off the scene. But the very covenant of God seems to be threatened. Because now Israel is in Egypt and they don't have the backing of its king. What are they going to do living in a land in which not only are they the minority, but also now they are unknown. And in fact, Pharaoh responds with this very fear. This new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph or his, or his incredible redemptive works in their land, what does he do? He says, I am terrified. Because this people of Israel are growing rapidly. They're becoming numerous. They're becoming mighty and strong. And if a war is incited, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go not only join with our enemies, 
But they're going to leave this land to go to another land. Listen to that language. This is exactly what Joseph promised. Joseph said, God, in Genesis 50, God will not only take care of you, He will take you out of this land and bring you to your own land to inherit. But now this new Pharaoh, who doesn't know Joseph, has forgotten about God's redemptive work through him, is keeping them in the land that's not their home. In a land in which, according to their eyes, they're not supposed to be. The covenant of God seems to be in great risk. But the people begin not only to be put under oppressed labor, they actually begin to multiply. They begin to produce. They begin to become fruitful. But then Pharaoh is not satisfied with this. You see, not only was the deliverer of God taken off the scene, and not only was the covenant of God actually at risk in their mind, now the very compassion of God doesn't seem to be present. Remember what Joseph promised. Not only will God make you numerous, He will bring you to a land. It doesn't seem to be happening. But God will also, in Genesis 50, Joseph says, God will also take care of you. He will be compassionate with you. Well, Pharaoh is not satisfied with simply oppressing people and forcing them into labor. What he has to do is he has to begin persecuting them. And he gathers together two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, and begins to instruct them that at the birth of any male child, you are to murder him. And not only is the covenant of God at risk, not only is the deliverer of God seeming to be off the scene, the very compassion of God, seems to be at risk, seems to be void, seems in its apparent state not to be taking care of Israel. God is allowing the king of Egypt to turn their own Hebrew midwives against their people? Well, the story doesn't stop there because these Hebrew midwives act incredibly shrewdly, incredibly wisely, and do not obey the very instructions of, of Pharaoh. What they do instead are stall up to the birth stool, allow the Hebrew woman to give birth so that they are not accountable for Pharaoh, before Pharaoh to kill the kids. But something is interesting about this passage. In Exodus chapter 1, throughout the whole 22 verses, God is precariously absent. He's mentioned a couple times at the end. He says that the Hebrew midwives feared God and that God was good to them. But, but a lot of commentators and scholars will note that in the first two chapters of Exodus, God seems precariously absent. Where is He to deliver Israel from this new king? Where is He to actually multiply them? It says that they're multiplied, but God is not the actor in doing this. Where is God in the midst of His people who have been promised a deliverer? who have been promised a covenant, who have been promised their God's care and compassion, and have been promised God's very presence, where is God in the midst of it? Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. Teach us that if we are to ever learn what it is to live in between the promises of God and their fulfillment, between the blessings of God and them coming to fruition, if we are to ever understand the confusion sometimes of our Christian life, what we have to admit, we have to begin by confessing 
that we indeed have only received part of the promise. It it sounds like a, a weird thing for us to do because we often speak of the incredible blessings of God, the glories of His Gospel. But in as much as God's work of salvation is past and present, it's also future. And so Israel, although they've been delivered by Joseph, although they have the covenant to multiply and receive a land, although they have the the sure certainty of God's compassion and the guarantee of His promise, Israel, in bondage, seems to be experiencing the absence of God. Seems to be experiencing the ignorance of God. Seems to be experiencing God only coming up half with His promise. Seem to be experiencing the absence of a deliverer to begin with. And so if we are to understand from Israel how we live in the middle of these two times, in between the promise of God and their fulfillment, we have to acknowledge that we've only received part of the blessing. We have to confess it. We have to say it. That we are in process. The plan of God is in process. Because if we don't, we will run to denial. Just like Israel was experiencing oppression, just like Israel was experiencing an apparent absence of God, we will deny the fact. We will deny the fact that these things really hurt us. We will run away from the fact that it really isn't that bad. That oppression really isn't that harmful. That the absence of God really isn't that detrimental to my life. And if we don't run in the direction of denial, we will run in the direction of disillusionment. We will become embittered against God and say, how dare you, God, only give us half the blessing? How dare you, God, actually remove the deliverer off the scene? How dare you, God, seem to remove your compassion and care for us? If we do not build the habit of confessing that we only received part of the blessing in hope to receive the full, we will run to either denial or disillusionment. We learn from Israel and bondage that we must admit that we are in the process of the plan of God. It's going on as we speak. Received in part, not received in full. But we also have to read this story in light of Israel about to enter the land of Egypt. We have to Read this as a a people who have been delivered from Egypt's clutches. And now they are wandering in a desert. And Moses writes and records this book, not only for a people who are in bondage, now for a people who are just on the brink of entering the land. They're just about to receive the second half of the promise. And we notice something in the beginning verses in Exodus chapter 1. We notice that there is in this genealogy... Moses says, these are the names of the sons of Israel. And he lists these sons of Jacob and makes an interesting editorial note in verse 5. He says, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob, they were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died and all his brothers of that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, multiplied, became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. 
Okay, let's break this down real briefly. Because often, I think, genealogies to me can become quite removed from how they apply to our life. But packed, enveloped in these six, seven verses of a genealogy are some incredible truths that Exodus 1 coheres and joins together for us. If we understand the very first phrase, Moses says, these are the names of the sons of Israel. It's a very common way to introduce a genealogy. But when we read it in light of Genesis, we notice that this phrase is very coherent with the rest of that book. If we read in Genesis 2, chapter 4, we we will understand that the whole book of Genesis is structured around this phrase. This is the account of so-and-so. This is what became of so-and-so. These are the generations of so-and-so. So in Genesis 2, chapter 4, Moses says, these are the generations. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. In Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 9, this is the account and the generations of what became of Noah. Genesis chapter 11, it's about Abraham. In Genesis uh, chapter 25, and, and moving on into the rest of the book, we learn that this statement, these are the generations, this is the account links Israel back with a whole history, with a whole history of God's redemptive work. This simple phrase links Israel back to Abraham, to Noah, to Jacob, to Isaac, and even back to the very creation account in Genesis chapter 2. But not only does it link Israel back to this strand of the people of God. It also links Israel back to the very creation of God in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. For notice in verse 7, Moses says, in spite of the fact that the deliverer is off the scene, the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They became exceedingly great and mighty so that the land was filled with them. Look at verse 12. The more that Pharaoh afflicted them, and the taskmasters afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Look at verse 20. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied, and became very mighty. You see, Exodus chapter 1 places everything not only in the context of the people of God, a historic strand of people reaching all the way back to creation and even up to that point in Egypt, but Exodus 1 also connects salvation to the very creation of God. And what we often do is we think of the book of Genesis as a book of beginnings, a book of inception, a book of first starts. God is putting everything into order. He's creating. And then as soon as we move to the book of Exodus, what we begin to see in Exodus is is a book of redemption, a book of liberation, a book of deliverance. As if sometimes we can be confused that creation and salvation are something different. That creation and redemption and liberation are two separate items in God's plan. That God decided, in Genesis 1 and 2, He decided to create the world, the universe, and fill it. But now things have spoiled and gone terribly wrong. 
So now, God must enact His work of redemption, of liberation. He must save everything that has gone wrong. And sometimes, we can perceive salvation as plan B of God's act of creation. But according to these strains, these little phrases that connect Exodus 1 all the way back to creation, they connect them all the way through the people of God in in the book of Genesis. We learn that salvation is in fact a continuation of God's work of creation. There's no plan B. God didn't mess up the plan of creation and now needs to deliver His people out of Egypt. What God is doing in Egypt to the people of Israel is precisely what He was doing in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when He created the world. Because you see, God in Genesis 1 was to multiply and fill the earth with humanity. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And He does this with every single patriarch. If we were to take time and look in Genesis chapter 9, God commands Noah to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis chapter 17, with Abraham, God says you will be a fruitful people that will multiply. Genesis chapter 25, with Jacob. Genesis chapter 37 and 47 and 49, with Joseph. We find out that in every juncture in Genesis, God repeats this phrase, that the people of God will multiply, they will be fruitful, and they will fill the earth. The people of God will become numerous, And they will inherit a land. And so salvation is part and parcel of God's work of creation. But notice what happens as we move to the second part of the story in verse 8. We notice that not only is salvation part of God's work of creation, we notice that this people have become very unknown. In verse 8 it says that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And not only were they unknown, they became exploited. So in verse 11, these taskmasters were set over them to afflict them with hard labor. Listen to the repetition in verse 13. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, all kinds of labor in the field, and their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And we find out that not only is salvation part and parcel with the creation of God, but also affliction, oppression are part and parcel of what it means to be part of the people of God that are being saved. That we cannot separate God's act in Genesis 1 and 2 from His act of liberation and saving us. But we also cannot separate affliction and persecution and suffering from what God is doing. Because notice what happens in verse 12. Listen to the math in Exodus 1 verse 12. It says that the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. This is phenomenal. Israel is unknown in Egypt, and even though they're unknown, God is causing them to spread out. Israel is exploited and abused in Egypt, and even though they are abused, God is causing them to multiply. Israel is oppressed and afflicted in Egypt, and even though they are afflicted in Egypt, God is causing them to actually be 
a thing of dread. That the very thing that Egypt is persecuting, now they're terrified about. Now they are in terror about. Salvation, in as much as it is, not only the creation of God, continuing His plan in Genesis 1 to fill the earth with humanity, it is also us understanding our lot in life of affliction and oppression and suffering. And that in as much as we are to look back in the past to what God has done, we are to endure the present in light of what is to come. So this king took these Hebrew midwives and began to instruct them to kill these infant boys. But they would have nothing of it because the text says that they feared God and they chose to obey God rather than man. And so Pharaoh came back to them and it says, why is it that you have decided not to follow through with my instruction? And they said, these Hebrew women, they are very vigorous, very strong. In fact, they give birth so fast before we even get to the birth stool, the child's already delivered. And the text says that because the Hebrew midwives feared God, God established households for them. But Pharaoh wasn't satisfied. And so Pharaoh said, now I will not only deal with the midwives, but this is an injunction for all people. Whenever a male child is born, he is to be taken and thrown into the river. But if it's a daughter, she is to live. And this story, this narrative of Exodus chapter 1 not only teaches us about salvation and creation, not only teaches us about salvation and affliction, this book, this narrative also teaches us about what it means to live for the future fulfillment to come. Because this is how we are to live in between the promises of God and their fulfillment. We have to reflect in God's act of creation as a promise and a hope of what He's going to do in the future. We have to look back in the past and what God has done in the lives of myriads of people as a promise and a hope of what He's going to do in the future. And what He's going to do in the future is anticipated in this very passage. Because if we had time to look at the next story in Exodus chapter 2, it is very interesting that Pharaoh commanded all people to do what? To throw the Hebrew boys into the river. And then what in chapter 2 happens? Moses is born. And in fear of not wanting her son to die because he was beautiful in appearance, Moses' mom takes him, wraps him in a basket and places him where? In the river. And so the very act of persecution for the people of God became an act of deliverance. And not only this persecution in Exodus chapter 1, but in Exodus 11 and 12, God will return the favor, so to speak. And the final plague on Egypt will be the destruction of the firstborn. And as we move even to the New Testament, when we look at Jesus' birth, we find out that Jesus is born under Herod, who is wanting to kill all the firstborn males. These Hebrew midwives were able to see beyond the present. These Hebrew midwives were, a, were able to see their oppression and affliction beyond their present circumstances. 
and to live for the future, to anticipate a deliverer to come. How do we live in between the promises of God and their fulfillment? In terms of Israel and bondage, we have to acknowledge the fact that we only have part of the blessing. Or else we're one to denial, or we'll be embittered in disillusionment. That God is holding out on us. But we also have to trust God in the present, in light of what He's done in the past, as a promise and a hope of what He's going to do in the future. That we have to see beyond the present, into the future, and in the same way that the midwives anticipated the coming of a deliverer, this is what we do. We anticipate, we pave the way for the coming of the Son. He has come once, and He will come again. We live in between the promises of God and their fulfillment. Not only by acknowledging that we've only received it in part, but also anticipating the return of the Son in its full measure. But there's a last way. As we read this text, we also have to read it in light of where we are today in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And as Christians, when we look back at this passage, we see something very interesting. And I want to just summarize it by turning to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're answering the question, how do we live between the promises of God and their fulfillment? We not only have to acknowledge that we only have the blessing in part, we have to see beyond the present and anticipating the coming of the Son in our affliction, realizing that creation is as much an act of salvation as it is redemption. But also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we receive a rubric for how to feel, how to experience the present hardship. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not despairing. Uh, perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. When we reread Exodus chapter 1 through the eyes of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we find out that Israel was a people that were struck down. Their deliverer was off the scene. And we find out that they were a people that were afflicted and oppressed with hard labor. And they were a people that were persecuted. And they were a people that also were very perplexed that God would even keep the people of God in bondage for 400 years. But inasmuch as Exodus chapter 1 is not only an injunction for us to look back at the past, and not only is it a command for us to endure the present, it is also a command for us to learn the parameters of how we are to experience the very suffering that we experience. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for the people of Israel, you are allowed to feel afflicted, but you are not allowed to feel crushed. You are allowed to feel persecuted, but you are not allowed to feel abandoned. 
You are allowed to feel perplexed, but you cannot move to the point in which your perplexion turns to despair. You are allowed to experience the deep struggles of the confusion in between the promises of God and their fulfillment. But your perplexion cannot turn to despair. You're allowed to feel afflicted, but your affliction cannot allow you to be crushed. You're allowed to be persecuted and attacked, but your persecution will not be able to be turned and to be abandoned. In as much as Exodus chapter 1 gives us a memory of the past, in as much as it teaches us that we are to trust God in the present, as a, in light of what He's done in the past, as a pre- promise and a hope of what He will do in the future, we also, even though we've received the promises of God in part, Exodus 1 teaches us that we are to feel afflicted. And we are allowed to feel afflicted, but not crushed. We are allowed to feel perplexed. And in fact, Perhaps we should feel perplexed, but we shouldn't despair. We are allowed to feel persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because if there's anything in terms of the confusion of the present world, Exodus 1 teaches us that we can't afford to divide ourselves and make ourselves idealists or realists. We have to be both. We can't long for the ideal without experiencing the real emotions of the suffering and affliction that's present among us. And we can't be realists who soak in what seems to be the absence of God, what seems to be the persecution of the people of God without looking for the ideal to come. If there's anything, in short, what we are to do, how we are to live in the present distress, between the promises of God and their fulfillment, between the blessings of God and their fruition. What we must do is be people who long for the future and ideal to come, experiencing real, deep emotions for what we are actually going through. And we need to experience real, deep emotions, not soaking in them, but living for the future to come. Because if there is any validation that what we believe is legit, if there is any confirmation for the world around us, we have to hold these two intentions. We are allowed to be afflicted, and perhaps we should be, but not crushed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Persecuted, not abandoned. Afflicted, but not crushed. I pray that we would be realists and idealists And a world that's longing for people who actually feel the pain around them. And people who actually have hope beyond the pain around them. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, for the grace that you give us to study your scriptures, for the good of us here in this room, for the glory of you, and for the great grace to extend to those yet to believe, I pray that in light of Exodus 1, you would teach us what it is to remember your incredible work of salvation in history's past. That you would help us to not only remember that, but also live in the present, in light of what you've done in the past. May that give us hope and a promise of what you will do in the future. 
But help us please also to know the parameters that we would, although have the fulfillment of the promises of God in part, that we would feel deeply. That we would experience the present distress really. And that this would offer hope to those around us as we anticipate the coming of the Son, the resurrection of the dead, and the hope of the world to come. Amen.